0: Wells Crowther wore a red bandana from the time that he was six years old. He wore it everywhere. His father gave it to him when he was six and said the fancy white one that goes in the front pocket of your jacket, that's for show, and the red bandana is for blow. That's what his father told him. And he kept that with him, and he wore it. He wore it everywhere. He wore it when he joined his father to work with the Empire Hook and Ladder Company when he was 16. He wore it when he played lacrosse for Boston College. He tied it on his head and wore it under his helmet. He wore it when he took a job as an equities trader when everyone else was wearing white handkerchiefs and fancy Italian suits. He had this red bandana with him everywhere. And he had it with him the day he went to work on the 104th floor of the World Trade Center, South Tower. And on that day, on the 104th floor, there was an explosion that he heard and felt when United Airlines Flight 175 exploded into the tower between floors 78 and 85. Wells Crowther began his way down, escaping but on the way down, he found somebody on the floor, and he went in to check to make sure who was there, and one of the people that he found was Lynn Young, who was blown back against the wall with the explosion, and she couldn't see what had happened until she wiped all the blood off of her glasses. And when she did, she saw this figure coming through the smoke and through the ash and said, I found the stairway. If you can stand up, come with me. And she did, and he delivered her into the hands several floors down of firefighters who took her down to a lower floor where there was still a working elevator. But then instead of going with them, Wells Crowther went back up. And he went back up to another fo- floor where he found Judy Ween. And on this floor, he came in and he said, anybody that can stand up, stand up. And help others stand up and come with me. And he led this group down as well to the same firemen. And he turned around and went back up. Well, he never made it out of that South Tower that day. His body was found six months later, surrounded by New York City fire department firemen. Six months later. And yet the people that he rescued, and it said he rescued over a dozen people that day, leading them down the fire escapes, down the the stairways to to their safety, while he kept going back and going back and going back again. And when he was found with those firemen, he was found with his red bandana on, across his mouth, sheltering him from all of the debris and the dust and the smoke. One of the people he rescued keeps a picture of him in her apartment. And it reminds her that people do actually live sacrificially. That there are people who would give their life for someone else. And we're moved by stories like this, aren't we? I mean, yes, it's in the middle of 9-11, which is a moving memory for most of us. But we're moved by stories like this all the time in books and in movies where people live sacrificially, replace themselves with someone else so someone else might live. And yet I want to remind you that every one of those occasions, those people eventually die. One may have given their life for them and they may be grateful, but the one who lives from that experience will yet die. And the reason these stories move us is because they are versions of the story of all stories. They are versions of of God working in Christ to make enemies of him, friends of his, through the work of Christ, who gave himself, the sinless one, in place of us, and as our representative, the sinful ones. And all those other stories are only good stories because they remind us of the story of all stories. We don't need a red bandana that still stays in the museum there, the 9-11 museum. The red bandana is still there. We don't need that kind of a reminder because we have the reminder of the scriptures of what Christ did on behalf of these people. Now all the songs we sang this morning were, if, if, we, if we are mood driven, then we say they were melancholy. They, are, they were slow, maybe mournful. And as we contemplate the one who knew no sin, who became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God, righteousness of God in Christ, isn't there a mournful response to that when we first hear that? Someone who did not deserve death gave himself to die so that I who did deserve death might live. The once for all sacrifice Now there is joy coming from that, amen? But the contemplation in our text before us is the contemplation of the substitute. The one who we deemed stricken, smitten, and afflicted for his own sin and then it dawns on us that he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for our sin. That's the text before us. So I don't want us to be mournful in the sense of no hope. I want us to mourn as Christians mourn. We mourn with hope. Because we know that not only did he give himself for his people, but after his death he rose again and seated exalted at the right hand of the Father. Amen? And those texts follow us in the next few weeks. But our text this morning, I want us to feel Christ as smitten and stricken and afflicted for us turn to Isaiah 53. We've already heard our text read in the confession of sin and the reminder of our forgiveness. But I want to read it again, and I want to read it in context. So I want to start in Isaiah 52, verse 13, where we were two weeks ago. Remember this section of isaiah is is this fourth servant song, and it seems to be divided up in five sections in the Hebrew, so we're taking it in five sermons this the text that we're looking at today is the pinnacle of the servant song, of the fourth servant song. It is the center. Remember, we talked about it being kind of chiastic or chiastic, where the first and the fifth section were both had had exaltation and victory in it, and the second and the fourth section are all descriptive of his death. And the middle section is the primary point, as as any. Um, chiastic construction does that middle section that is the main point of the author in the text and so we come to this as the pinnacle of this fourth servant song let's stand together as i read from 52 13 through the end of our text 53 6 behold my servant shall act wisely And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, we saw this first description of the servant's suffering. The servant shall be high, lifted up and exalted as a result of his suffering to cleanse many. And we saw in those verses both the exaltation of Christ, that's where we start and that's where we will end the effects of what Christ has accomplished, but that all flows from his suffering. The second verse of this servant song describing the servant's suffering the servant was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and despised and rejected by men now remember last week when we saw that we said that this is isaiah's voice speaking for the people so he's speaking for us as well what he's saying transcends israel's day Remember this setting that Israel in the southern kingdom were taken captivity a hundred and plus years after Isaiah um, wrote and spoke. And this this people in captivity are getting ready to be released and they're hearing this section of Isaiah directly dealing with their release. And remember that through this section we've seen that they are going to be released physically. They are going to be rescued physically. But unless their sin is taken care of, there's no rest for them because they're still wicked. And this fourth servant song brings to a climax all of the previous three servant songs in this section to tell us how Yahweh accomplishes that. And so last week we saw that the people in Christ's day, and the people today still, they deem Christ as not worthy of their respect. They esteem him not. He, just, he, he looked sorrowful. He was a man who was bearing sorrow. And they thought that he was despised and rejected by God. So they esteemed him not anything to worry about. They were under the same um, a, a false thinking that many are today. That if one is suffering, they must be out of God's will. That's what they thought. That would have been typical ancient Near Eastern thought and it's typical thought for us today to just dismiss someone's suffering thinking it is always a result of their sin. When in reality, all suffering is a result of sin, yes, but it's not always a result of our personal sin. Now Christ is the prime example of that, the one who knew no sin. But something happened to him so that we could enter into a relationship with Christ. And so last week we saw that their view of him was a false view. And as we turn the corner in this week's text in verse 4, we see the dawning on them, the realization that they esteemed him wrong. That word surely, right at the beginning of verse 4, tells us that. Surely this is something that they had misunderstood and that they had a wrong view of him, and they start to see the right view. And we read this last week as a... As a uh, kind of a, a shove into this text so that we would be able to see the pronouns. And I want you to keep track of those throughout, throughout this sermon because the pronouns make the gospel. The gospel, as it's been said, Luther or Calvin 1 said, the gospel is in the pronouns. And that's exactly the way it is in our text. So what we are talking about today, what the focus is, is substitution. Him for us. That's the focus, substitution. So I want to do just a little bit of work, not long. People have written books on this, and people have written books in opposition to books on this, and then more books written to the opposition to the original thought on this idea of atonement. But this is what's in front of us. is substitutionary atonement. That Christ was our substitute And our representative, which we'll talk about in a minute why that's important, he was the one who went to the cross in place of us, and God had a purpose in this. So when we say atonement, what do we mean? And the easiest way to think about atonement is it is the work that Christ did on the cross or the work that God did in Christ to make enemies of God friends of God. That's the easiest way to think about it. God is holy and mankind is not. Mankind as sinful cannot approach a holy God, amen? We learned this in Leviticus in how many different chapters. We cannot approach a holy God without doing it in the way God says. And in Christ is where that becomes available to anyone who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ who did the work. So when we talk about the atonement, we're talking about the work of Christ to appease the perfect righteous character of the Father. Because if God is truly God, he must execute wrath against sin. Do you understand that? Is that? If that's a strange concept, let that sin in. God, as the righteous one, must punish sin. And as the righteous one, his wrath must be exercised against sin. If he does not do that, he is not God. And the whole thing that we meet about every week, the truth of the Scriptures as we see Christ revealed, means nothing. God has got to be appeased if we are going to be in His presence without us dying. And the only way He can do that, and the way the Scriptures reveal that He's done that, is to send His Son, who is one who was perfect without sin. The Bible refers to Him as a spotless Lamb, using that Old Testament language, that Old Covenant sacrificial language. And so God's wrath is appeased. Remember that fancy word that's not just a fancy word, it's a scriptural word, right? Propitiation. Remember that word that, that where Christ is a propitiatory sacrifice? And that sacrifice both turns God's wrath away from us Because God places his wrath on his son, who did not deserve it, the innocent one. But it also turns God's face toward us in a propitiatory manner, so that he looks at us with favor. That's what the atonement is about. It happens because Jesus was our substitute and our representative. Now, this isn't a new concept in Scripture. It's all the way through. We see it as early as Genesis chapter 9 in the covenant with Noah where God said that every, everything that's living and moves and every plant is good to eat, there were no dietary laws at this time, but that they were, but I, uh, Genesis 9, 4 says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. We saw this in Leviticus as well as explaining all that sacrificial language about blood and what to do with the blood in Leviticus 17. Neither Israel nor any stranger or sojourner in their land was allowed to eat blood. And the reason given in Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls." For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So even in Leviticus, atonement was in sight. God covering the sins of the people. But we also learn in Hebrews that 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 blood, the the blood, the life blood is is still required in the New Testament. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And we saw this also back in, in, in Abraham's day, did we not? When God told Abraham to take Isaac up to the mountain and, Isaac, and Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac, but because he was obedient to God's word, God provided the ram in the thicket, a substitution for his son's life. Just a few verses later in Hebrews, we read, but in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins every year. Why is that? Because the sacrifices had to be done over and over and over and over again. And if you're sacrificing for sin, you're being reminded of what? The need for sacrifice because we still have sin. We're still guilty in that system. For it is impossible, says the writer of Hebrews, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. And Hebrews gives us that that long sermon on the work of Christ and what it accomplished by him being the better covenant, him being the better priest, the better sacrifice, the better Moses, the better everything is in Christ so that forgiveness of sin was done for the once and for all offering. So we are reminded of sin when we contemplate why Christ died, but we're also reminded that if we are in Christ, our sin is forgiven, past, present, and future, because he was our substitute as he died. Micah understood this, that famous verse, Micah 6, 8, that you all know, but the verses leading up to it, with what shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before God on high, says Micah? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, a substitute, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then he's told, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? In the Passover, obedience to the word of the Lord spared the people, did it not? Do the, eat the lamb in this way, spread the blood in this way, on the doorpost, in the lintel, do what I tell you and I will pass over you. And the Bible is very clear that all of that pointed forward to the work of Christ as we find John saying, behold, the Lamb of God, John the Baptist saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, or Paul reminding us in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Turn to John chapter 11. We're about to move to our text. All this helps us to understand our text before we get to it. Turn to John chapter 11 and see this concept was even found without realizing it in the New Testament, by one who was, let's just say, playing the politics. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. This is immediately following Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, right? So there's a buzz. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Not that the whole nation should perish. And then John tells us he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And several chapters later, Jesus is brought into the trials, and in John, the first person he's brought to is Annas, and Annas is identified by this statement. Because Annas is identified as Caiaphas being his father-in-law and Caiaphas is the one who said it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So this idea of substitution permeates the scriptures and we could have gone to dozens more Every time you're reading, in, especially in the New Testament, and you see that Christ died for, you're thinking of substitutionary atonement, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died. Whatever the scripture is telling you, it's giving you another example of what happened in this substitutionary, substitutionary death of Jesus. So that, a preface to the substitution that we are brought here. Now I want you to realize that when we say substitute, we're talking about substitute and representative. William Lane Craig was one who brought this with great illustrations, I thought. He brought baseball illustrations, which I'm prone to like to begin with, but it does give us the illustration of how one can be a substitute but not a representative or be a representative and not a substitute, and Christ must have been both. When when the baseball game is going on and the manager thinks that somebody else going up to bat would be more expedient for the team, then he'll send in a pinch hitter. You familiar with that term? The one who is supposed to hit goes and sits down, and the one the manager thinks would do a better job stands up. So he is a substitute. He's not a representative. He's not the person that sat down. He's just a substitute, and he's doing his role for the team. But, but but Christ is both the substitute and the representative. See, Christ did did not merely die for our sins. In all of those statements, it is He died for our sins in our place, so that we gain the benefit of His death. He doesn't die because He's sinful, and He doesn't just take our place like like the man who rescued people from the tower, and they're still going to die later. He is also our representative. And we can see this also in an agent for a baseball player. If the, every, age, every professional sports person has an agent, and that agent will go do the negotiations with the team, right? And when they go do the, so the negotiations, they are representative of the person, but they're not a substitute. When the contract is drawn up, the representative takes it back to the baseball player, the sports person, and they have to sign it because they're only representing them, not... They're not a substitute for them, but if you think about someone who is um, on the board of directors of a corporation, and on that board of directors they have an annual meeting, and every every person on the board has a vote. Let's say you're that person, but you cannot be at the meeting that day, so you send a proxy. And you sign paperwork where that person goes and they not only represent you, but they are your substitute. They take your vote and they give it. They represent you in your absence, but they are also, they're they're the substitute in your absence, but they're also the representative because you, they're speaking on your behalf. So Christ does both. If he's merely a substitute for our sins without the representative side of this, then he's just another person who dies. But when he dies in our place and we benefit because he represented us and the wrath of the Father was placed on him instead of us and it's a once for all offering, then we are the beneficiaries of all the the glories of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. So this text tells us about the substitute of Christ in our place. And this third verse of the servant song, the servant suffered in our place, was crushed for our sins and bore our iniquity. Look at verse four. Surely, there's this dawning on them, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Notice how the, 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 it's so tightly written. If you look back in verse three, we have, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But here we have he bore our griefs and our sorrows. It reverses them. Almost poetically telling us about the reversal that's taking place. That he goes in our place. That he is, he was not acquainted with grief and a man of sorrow simply because in any way because he was suffering from God and his own sin. He was suffering on our behalf in Isaiah. It dawns on him and for his people in verse four that his griefs and his sorrows were ours. He carried ours. He bore them and he carried them. The language of Leviticus. It's the same language that's used over and over in Leviticus where the author, the, the giver of the sacrifice would come and bring the prescribed sacrifice and lay a hand on them and identify with that sacrifice, but that sacrifice goes in his place so that the sins of the person are not killed by God, God places his wrath on the animal. And because the blood of boats, bulls and goats can't accomplish the forgiveness of sins, it has to be done over and over and over. But the idea of substitution is born in to the scriptures, and it is here as well. And notice, he bore them, and he carried them. He picked them up, and then he carried them away. We'll come back to that concept in a moment. So this is one that as the people have it, dawn on them the truth that this is what he did. He bore their griefs. He bore your griefs. He bore our sorrows on the cross. Now remember, those griefs and sorrows are not just a bad day. As this scripture progresses, and we looked at this last week, I'm not going to go through all of it again, but as the scripture progresses, we see that these are iniquities. We're going to see that in the last section of the verse, last verse we're going to talk about today. These are ways of saying that the griefs and the sorrows and the solution to it are not just just wounds on the body but wounds on the body that brought death to the unrighteous. All of this is, is seeing our sin in focus and Christ's sinlessness but suffering in our place, the wrath of God. So he's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. The New Testament quotes this Um, Isaiah 53 in many different places. In Matthew chapter 8, you don't need to turn there, but when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose again and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought him to the many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. So when we talk about illness and diseases, we're talking about it being a byproduct of sin. That's why Jesus healed so many people. He's preparing the way, not for the physical healing, but if he, can, if he can physically heal someone, then when he says he can forgive sins, that's what he's leading to. That's all what the picture is of those, those physical healings. Because remember, he comes, yes, he's giving people physical healing, but the whole point is to point them toward their spiritual healing. That he comes as the leader of the new exodus where we're led out of captivity from our sin. Look at that third line in verse 4. Yet, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Remember, that takes us back to what they esteemed him. Now, don't use the English idea of esteemed being, when we think of we esteem someone, we're, we're lifting them up. We're finding something good about them and lifting them up. What this word means is to consider, to reckon. We reckoned it. We thought of him stick, uh, um We thought of him. Our mind was thinking of him. This harkens back to verse 3 as one who was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So they're realizing that it was that but it was not him. They esteemed him that but they were wrong in doing that. How do we know that? Just look at the beginning of verse 5. But. You see that but? This is the opposite of that. We esteemed him being punished by God. That's what we thought was going on. But the realization, the dawning that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, verse 5. But he was pierced. Now, now this is a, a thing with the ESV. My ESV, which is older, it's not the revision, says he was wounded for our transgressions. And then the last phrase says, and with his stripes we are healed. In the, in the revised ESV, it says he was pierced for our transgressions and by his wounds we are healed. I wish it would have just left it like the language is that he's pierced and that he, that he is pierced and he, it, it's his stripes pierced and his stripes because that can, that's what the words mean and that conveys the meaning that we're talking about but beginning of verse 5 he was wounded for our transgressions not for his own and he was crushed pulverized is what this word means sometimes the noun version is used to describe dust at times he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities it is our sin that placed him there and the realization, did you come? do you remember coming to that realization when you were saved? Do, do you remember coming to the realization that your sin deserved death and Christ who did not sin received death, bore the wrath of God for you? Well, let me ask you an even more pertinent question for us today. Do you think about that now? What effect does that have on you? When you are thinking about sinning, And let me tell you, you do think about sinning before you sin. Something has put you in that direction. When you're in that position, do you think what Christ has done on your behalf? Does that cross your mind? Because that is the central focus of the gospel, that Jesus came and he died a death he did not deserve so that we would have life, so that our sin would be forgiven. Now, I'm not trying to say so now you need to feel more guilty of your sin because you remember what Jesus did. I'm trying to say, be more committed to fighting the sin because you remember what Jesus did. He died for your sin so that you would not be held accountable for that sin, that you would not receive the wrath of God for that sin. He was in your place so that you now have the tools to fight that sin and not submit to it. You have the tool to go against the sin, against Satan, and say, no, my Lord died for that sin. It was costly, yes. and it motivates us. It motivates us with the gospel and not the law. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. So this word stripes means a wound that's... that's um, given to someone that breaks the skin. That's what it's describing. So we have this picture of what happened when Christ died. We'll go into this even more next week in the in the fourth verse of this servant song. But you see the pronouns, yes? He for our. He for our. Him brought us. His we are healed. That's where the gospel lies in Isaiah 53. And it's where the gospel lies everywhere because we did not get what we deserved and Christ got what he did not deserve so that we might live. Enemies to friends. Now this constant repetition of these phrases of sickness and pains and of sorrows and the stricken. One commentator, John Oswald, says this. The skill of the poet is shown in his repetition and reversal of sickness and pains from verse 3. That weakness and illness that made us think little of the servant, it is our weakness and illness. The very things that made us think him of no account are the things for which we ought to honor him. Because it is for our sake he is enduring them. Part of the shock of recognition is due to the typical ancient Near Eastern understanding of the source of suffering. If a person is suffering, it is because he or she has done something to deserve it. And he cites the book of Job and Job's friends. That's what they thought over and over, that he must deserve this suffering. Now, you've probably experienced this kind of false understanding in your own life, haven't you? I've experienced it in my life. In the eyes of the world, my life was a trajectory upward until it wasn't. And the trajectory upward was being successful in music and making it in, into the military music program and, and then to the band in Washington, D.C., and that was this high honor. And, and I'm not saying it wasn't, but it's not the only honor in the world, is it? And once God took us out of that position and brought us into ministry, then the trajectory started going down. For those who thought in worldly means, how can, a, how can someone who's reached the pinnacle of their music career now go into ministry and pastor a church? What does that do? And I felt that in the life of some of the people that I had relationships with, people that were my former teachers, a former band director who was always staying in contact with me until I went into ministry and I never heard from him again. And the reason was because I was his inside scoop to what happened in the Washington D.C. bands. And if I wasn't there, then I wasn't a star in his cap. My percussion instructor did the same thing, wanted to keep in touch with me while I was in the Navy band because I was just a star in his cap. And once I wasn't there anymore, we didn't talk anymore. We even had close family members who did the same thing, who thought as that route into ministry led to suffering and being kicked out of a church and then not having a ministry and wondering what God was doing and what was going on in our life, we were asked by somebody close to us, well, what are you doing to bring that on? Maybe, maybe there's something in your life that's sinful against God and he's punishing you with this. Now that could have been true, amen? That could have been true. But the reality is it was a false understanding that success is not what the world says. And it was a false understanding that God can't do what he wants with his servants. And so we've ex- you've probably experienced the same kind of thing. And this is what happens in the world. The world assesses Jesus in one way. And our job is to correct that understanding of Jesus so that they're responsible for how they respond to Jesus. Uh, another writer, Ed Young, puts it this way The unbelief that Isaiah here depicts is the same unbelief found all about us today. Men say pleasant and complimentary things about the Lord of glory. They will praise his ethics, his teaching, declare that he was a good man and a great prophet, the only one who has, ans- who has answers to the social problems that today confront the world. They will not, however, acknowledge that they are sinners deserving of everlasting punishment, and that the death of Christ was a vicarious sacrifice designed to satisfy the justice of God and to reconcile an offended God to the sinner. Men will not receive what God has concerning his son. Today also the servant is despised and rejected of men, and men do not esteem him. Now that's the world we walk into, but that's the world that needs the message that Christ died for them. That's the world that needs the message that they are sinners in need of someone else to stand on their behalf because they have no righteousness of their own that will let them stand before a God. Their enemy status with God will not be changed Unless one who is perfect and not, had never sinned stands in their place. This is the crux of what we teach to people when we give the gospel. I'm not saying you say, do you know that my savior is a substitutionary penal atonement for your sin? I'm not saying you use those languages. But if you avoid the concept, you've got a Jesus with no power. You've got a Jesus who died. This is why all these other views of the atonement, which I was tempted to list some of them, but I don't want to pollute your mind with those. Throughout history, there have been these other views of the atonement because they do not believe that God is holy. And that's what it boils down to. If God is truly holy, then he has got to satisfy the wrath that he he must be satisfied with the expression of his wrath against sin. Otherwise, he's not holy. If he winks at that sin and doesn't deal with it as his character says, he's not holy, he's not God, and we're all to be most pitied. So when people come up with these other things like, well, I'm not going to follow a God, it's cosmic child abuse to think that your son needs to be punished for someone else. They don't understand the character of God. And they also, hear me, they do not understand their own sin. They do not understand the holiness of God and his perfection, and they do not understand sin in their own life. But I'm gonna tell you something else. They also have God just chopped up into these little pieces. They want his loving side, his merciful side, but not his justice and his wrath side. Now we learned several years ago that God's character cannot be split up into little pieces, right? He is righteous and holy and just, and he's loving and he's merciful. He's all of that at the same time, equally perfect in all of his attributes and he doesn't just like one day, well, today I'm going to turn on the love button. I'm going to do everything according to my love. Yeah, that was enough. Tomorrow's going to be the wrath button, nothing but wrath. When he executes wrath, he does it in perfect love. When he loves, he does it in perfect holiness with perfect justice. So these, if we don't let the Bible stand for what the Bible actually says, then we have a weak God and a weak Jesus and we should all go home because there's no reason for us to be here. But we know that's not true, don't we? Even Isaiah tells us he was stricken and smitten and afflicted for us and his work brings us peace. Now remember this idea of peace, this is whole peace, right? Right? It's not just, that's why I prayed the way I did this morning for this conflict going on, this war that's brewing over in the Middle East. I I don't want just the the bullets to stop flying and the hostages to quit being taken. I want to see men and women come to Christ so that they have peace and they start resting in Christ and these kinds of actions will be dealt with by the Holy Spirit. I want to see them come to their salvation. And if men and women die in the process, we leave that to God. I don't want to just see the stopping of bullets because it'll just be tomorrow when somebody else decides to shoot another bullet. We pray according to the God that we worship. And that God can redeem every person in Israel and every person in Hamas should he choose to do so. That's the root of our prayer. That's that's where we pray to the root of the issue. Do we want people to stop being killed? Yes, absolutely, we pray that. But we want people to come to eternal peace with God in the midst of what God is doing. Well, it says in this verse, his chastisement brought us peace and by his stripes or with his stripes, we are healed. So I've already talked a little bit about this healing in the New Testament, that it's a precursor showing the power of Christ but also precursor to the healing of of the consequences of sin. And that's the way it's brought all the way through Isaiah, isn't it? The consequences of sin, when God heals, he removes his wrath from his people because he's relenting his punishment for their sin. And it's his choice to do that. We started this right at the beginning in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is told that this is his message. Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now is it just talking about putting band-aids on them? It's talking about forgiven for their sin, that they would hear the truth of what Isaiah says, the truth of what God says through Isaiah, and turn from their sin back to God and have their sins forgiven. Isaiah chapter 19, and Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to Yahweh, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. So he's going to remove the physical punishment because they've turned to God. They've repented of their sin. We see the same thing in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 26. And its precursors, all of this, is probably the language of Exodus 15, verse 26. There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, and do which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, he, and keep all his statutes, Yahweh says, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, but I, for I, Yahweh, am your healer. So is he talking about just physical healing? Of course he's not. You see the tie to obedience? We saw the same thing in Micah's quote. We saw the same thing with Abraham and Isaac. This healing goes from obedience. Jesus is the one who was totally obedient When we say He's without sin, we mean that He never did anything against the will of His Father, not once, in thought or deed. That's why when He dies in our place, the righteousness that He has is credited to our account. It's not that we all of a sudden become righteous, because I guarantee you within a nanosecond you'll be unrighteous again, right? You follow what I'm saying? This is all your sin forgiven. It is the righteousness credited to our account that no matter how much we sin, his mercy is more if we are in Christ. This is the power of the one who was sinless dying in the place of those who were sinners and who are sinners. Look at verse 6. I think I said this, but let me make sure when this talks about peace, we're talking about holistic peace, right? You get that, right? It's not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence internally and externally of peace with God and peace with man. It doesn't mean that we won't have trials and tribulations. We know we will, but there, we walk through that because now we have peace with God. And if our personal situation leads to death, what's the, what happens? We're with Jesus. Jesus. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I long to be with Jesus. And it makes me more bold in my thinking. Look at verse 6. Here's the reason that he needed to go. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. And we're going to see sheep here, and then we're going to see a lamb in verse 7 next week. And what a contrast. What a contrast between sheep here and the lamb in verse 7. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned... Every one to his own way. Now this is packed, isn't it? When we turn, sheep will do what they want to do. They get single-minded. They can be stubborn. They're single-minded and they're eating until they walk right off a cliff. They're single-minded in where they want to go until they walk right into the jaws of a foe that will eat them. That's why shepherds have rule over those sheep. So this is the picture that is given to us. When we go our own way, what that means is we're not going God's way, right? It's not just that we are taking a little stroll today. It is God has set the straight and narrow path, and we're going our own way, which means we what? Sin. It's our iniquity. It's the iniquity that we're about to learn that Yahweh placed on the servant. So we have all done that. See how, how clear he is? We have turned everyone. Is there anyone that you'll ever meet that doesn't need Jesus? No. And I mean that completely. The person who's walked with Jesus for his whole life or her whole life still needs Jesus, yes? They need Jesus every single day for their sustenance. They need Jesus to turn to every single day so that they are fighting sin, turning away from sin and turning toward Christ. And every lost person, their only need this is why what Luke is teaching us in the, in the discipleship um, ministry that he's giving us about the sufficiency of Scripture and discipleship, it's why it's so important. It all boils down to one thing, and that is Christ. Is he who he said he was? Is he who he said he is? And do we have the ability to obey him, as the Scriptures say, because of the work that he did? And if that is true, then everything else is just... I use the illustration all the time of, of two old guys, usually I'm one of them, sitting on the porch and there's bad fruit in the tree and we've got our shotguns beside us and out of, out of fun, we're just shooting the fruit out of the tree. Well, are we ever going to run out of fun? No, because the tree's always going to produce bad fruit. We need to get out of our rocking chairs and go chop the tree down and get to the root. And that, the root is always Christ. What he has accomplished on our behalf, and what he's called us to do through his scriptures and through the power of the Spirit. So, this is all pointing us because everyone is there. Every one of us has gone astray, has gone his own way, gone against the Lord. And then the the two lines that bring us to our knees. We're the ones that have gone our own way. It's our iniquity, it's our sin. We're the ones who deserve to be stricken and smitten and afflicted. We're the ones who deserve death. And yet, the end of verse 6, And Yahweh has laid on him, that is the servant, the iniquity of us all. Do you see this? Beginning of verse 6, all we, the middle of verse 6, everyone have gone. The end of verse 6, the iniquity of us all. Everyone who turns to Christ in repentance and faith, the iniquity, past, present, and future, your sin has been laid on Christ already. It's our repenting of that sin and recognizing our, our confession that we are dep- dependent upon his work and nothing we can do brings us that salvation or keeps us that salvation. It's been said many times, there's nothing in the Christian life that has to do with salvation of the Christian life that can be purchased at the do-it-yourself shop. None of it. It's all rooted in Christ. So we see this verse, beginning and ending with confession. "We like sheep have gone astray. The iniquity of all of us has been laid upon him. That's the glory." Now all of this language, this, this bearing and carrying away, it just I'm hoping that you're saying, I wonder why he's not talking about this. This is what it reminds us of, of the day of the, of the day of atonement, right? In Leviticus chapter 16. One of the things that happens on the day of the atonement was the scapegoat. Right? The one that would be put aside and the sins of the people would be confessed over them by the high priest and both hands laid upon that goat and sent out into the wilderness. Azazel sent out there so that the sin is taken out of the camp. The sin of the people is taken out of the camp. The day of atonement was the day that wiped the slate clean. Now they still needed sacrifices the very next day. But what is that... What is that? pointing us forward to. Does it just mean that every, every year we get the glorious day of atonement where the goat gets sent out into the wilderness and on that day we can sleep easy? No. It's because Yahweh laid all of our iniquity, all who will turn and repent of their sin and trust in Him, laid all of our iniquity on Him, the one who was innocent, the one who deserved none of it. The, the, and when the iniquity was laid upon Him, what else was laid on the punishment of that death and the wrath of God laid on the Holy One of Israel, laid on the One who had never sinned. Now that brings us, first of all, to sorrow and immediately to joy, doesn't it? This is why the writer of Hebrews talks about uh, that Jesus w- was taken out of the camp. Remember that in Hebrews chapter 13? We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Now, we don't need a red bandana to remind us of this, do we? We have the scriptures who remind us of a bloody cross, that it was the will of Yahweh to bring that sin, the sin of all who would believe. This, this foreshadows that, that thought, right? That it was, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him that we'll see in a couple of weeks. So when we remember the cross, this is why the Lord's Supper is more than just a memorial, The Lord's Supper is that place where we remind ourselves of the work of God in Christ on the cross and we feed upon these truths so that we go out into the world and we are able again to be encouraged and empowered to crucify our sin and to preach Christ and to live joyfully instead of overwhelmed by the world and to walk in this world with hope even as we grieve the sinfulness that goes on everywhere. We're feeding on these truths because it brings us face-to-face with the death and the resurrection of our Savior. Now, all of us, all of us are good at making crooked paths, aren't we? Now, I can sit here and just give you 50 different ways where you sin against God, but I don't need to do that. The Holy Spirit is working right now to do that. I want you to listen to another Oswald quote. This effect in the servant is the measure of how seriously God takes our rebellion and crookedness. We typically wish to make light of our shortcomings, to explain away our mistakes, but God will have none of it. The refusal of humanity to bow to the Creator's rule and our insistence on drawing up our own moral codes that pander to our lusts are not shortcomings or mistakes. They are the stuff of death and corruption. And unless someone can be found to stand in our place, they will see us impaled on the swords of our own making and broken on the racks of our own design. But someone has been found. Someone has taken on himself the results of our rebelliousness and we have been given the keys of the kingdom. Now that sums it up, doesn't it? If you are here at these crooked ways are always your manufactured ways to pander to your own lust, your own desires, and to run away from the God who, who is the one who created you in his image and the one who is not only worthy but demands your worship, If that's you and you have never turned to Christ, today is the day to do that. Because you're playing with death and destruction. And you may die in this life, but your death will be eternal punishment if you don't come to Christ, the one who died on behalf of those who would believe in him. This is your day to come. Give up your own life and turn to Christ. You may not know what any of that means yet but there are people sitting right next to you that will. So if this is where God is leading you today, turn to them once we finish today and ask them, I I think I just came to Christ. What do I do now? Let Let them give you a testimony of what happens next. You need to turn from your sin today. Christ died for the sin of all who would believe. Will you believe today? Repent, turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. But this is also a warning for us who know Christ, right? We become so comfortable with the gospel that our sin becomes easier and easier and easier because we don't contemplate what it costs to be forgiven. And we we can fall into the trap of Paul saying, like what Paul says in Romans, that if if grace abounds all the more in sin, then maybe we should sin all the more. And Paul says what? Absolutely, positively, no. That's, That's stinking thinking in all ways. This is fuel for obedience. This thinking, that Christ died in my place. My sins are forgiven because he bore the wrath of God, because he died in my place. Why would I go after the sin that he died for when he's given me life that's passionate after him and his life? It's fuel. It's joyful fuel. It is the key to joyful Christian living. See, we all think about the idea of sacrifice. There's not one among us who would not, I hope there's not one among us, who would not give their life for their children. I hope there's not one husband who would not give their life in place of their wife. But none of that is the same as the Christ who gives his life, suffers the wrath of God, and dies in our place so that we never have to die. How great the Father's love for us in Christ Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that brings us um, into that word and helps us to apply it and to understand it. And we pray today, Father, that even as we sang so many verses about the death of your son, that all of that would provide such great motivation for us to love you more. That every day we'd be more conformed into the image and likeness of your Son because we know that obedience is what you desire and you provided that for us in your Son. So help us, Father, to not only know this doctrine but to have it connect from our head to our heart and be seen in our life that we are ones who have been loved by the one true God enough to put our sin on your Son. Thank you for such grand and glorious truths. In Jesus' name, amen.